Good morning, church. Uh, there's two Bible readings for today. The first is from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Uh, so turn with me to Daniel 7 uh, as we commence from verse 1. Uh, if you would like a hard copy of the Bible, pop your hand up and our uh, ushers can uh, give you a copy. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I look, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth, between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and swamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Turn with me now to verse 15 of chapter 7. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I decide, desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom." Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall, be, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Turn with me now to Revelation uh, chapter 12. Verse 1. 
uh, starting from verse 17. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sea of the sand. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave its power and his throne and his great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound and its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name had not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword... With a sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performed great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. This is the word of God. Good to see everyone here. Uh, welcome to our church this week. Uh, if you're here for the first time, either in the building or on screen, uh, welcome. I hope you're enjoying the long weekend if you're here in Brisbane. <clears throat> uh, I think maybe some of you may not have realized, but Friday was a public holiday. Uh, it was nice to kind of have this random public holiday, uh, making up for the Ecker holiday we didn't have a couple of months back. Um, we are currently in the middle of a short series in Revelation 12 to 14. So if you're here just today or you've only been around a couple of weeks, uh, we actually began this uh, sermon series in Revelation chapter 1 back in the beginning of the year, and we worked through chapters 1 to 7, or actually the beginning of 8 back then. 
so if it, if it would actually help for you to read through uh, the previous 12 chapters if you haven't done so already um, uh, in preparation for next week's final sermon in Revelation 14. Uh, also later on coming up, I'll be flashing a, um, a diagram of the structure of Revelation. Revelation is one of those books, as you've heard from this reading today, if this was the only time you've ever heard from Revelation, it sounds very much like, whoa, what's going on? It's very important to know how the book fits together and what it's about. And I'll be showing you a diagram later. It'll be put on the church website and the church WhatsApp group and whatnot. So don't take photos. Don't try and memorize it later on when it comes up. Uh, it was been done by one of our sisters, uh, Jillian, uh, who is really good at this kind of stuff. So she spent a, a bit of time doing out this, this graphic for us. Uh, so appreciate it later when it comes up. It's pretty cool. Um, but yes, I will be getting to that uh, in a moment. For now, please do keep your Bibles open to Revelation 13, and also the outline of the sermon, if uh, it helps for you to follow along, it's inside the middle of the bulletin, uh, which uh, hosting can pass to you if you haven't got one, or you can download it from the church's website or our WhatsApp group um, to follow along. Um, most important thing we can do now is to pray uh, with the Bible open so that we uh, can have God speak to us uh, through His Word. So please join me as I pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who reveals to us uh, truths that we so need to know. Uh, we thank you for the book of Revelation uh, with all of its um, um, yeah, difficult uh, and seemingly inaccessible words and pictures and ideas. Uh, we thank you that when we do come to understand it, uh, you do speak to us with such clarity about the things that we need to know and how to live as Christians uh, in this period of time. And so we pray that today will be no different, that you would, uh, by your Spirit, open our, uh, our minds to understanding and our hearts to be able to receive your word, to be encouraged, uh, and to be challenged in order that we may conquer, uh, be en to endure and be faithful to the end. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I think it'd be fair to say that uh, many of us uh, are afraid of reading the book of Revelation. Right? So I won't get you to put your hands up, uh, but I think a lot of people are afraid to read the book of Revelation. Because the, the writing style and the imagery, uh, it seems really strange and really weird, doesn't it? You can give a small nod if you think so. Um, it, it seems really hard to understand. Uh, I've tried reading Revelation many times uh, as a kid and as a, as a teenager growing up. Uh, and it was uh, cool to read in a way, but once I closed it, it was pretty much, well, what's that all about, right? Uh, and we come to a section in Revelation in these few weeks, chapter 12 and 13 especially, uh, which... Um, in a way, it typifies what many of us think of Revelation, doesn't it? Uh, the idea of uh, dragons and beasts and mark of the beast and 666, right? This is kind of why Hollywood kind of goes to town uh, when it comes to Revelation. Um, there's nothing kind of more Revelation-y than this chapter that we've just heard read to us. And so it's important for us to remind ourselves what is all this kind of writing about what is Revelation about so that we can really get our heads around what we're meant to understand from this kind of chapter? Now, first thing I want to say is that Revelation is God telling us something, isn't it? Telling His people uh, what life is like between Jesus' first and second coming, right? So His first coming, His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension back to heaven, that's His first coming, His first advent. And then His second coming, His second advent is when He returns to bring all things to conclusion and bring the great day of judgment, right? And this is the period of time that Revelation is set. So this is where the cool diagram comes, okay? This is the outline of Revelation, um, that Jillian has uh, helped us to put together based on some uh, research by Poitras and Hendrickson, okay? And don't worry about memorizing all the details, but let me just explain a few things that I want you to talk about. 
Revelation can be broken up structurally in a very artistic way, and I think it's clearly artistic because it's sort of seven cycles of seven things. Okay, seven cycles of seven things. All of it happens uh, within the period of the inter-advent, right? For Jesus' first and second coming. So you've got your seven letters to seven churches, your seven seals, seven trumpets, seven signs as we see in our passage today, and so on. They're not consecutive sevens, right? It's not like one seven thing happens first, the seven church stuff, then the seven signs, uh, sorry, the seven seals happened, and so on. It's all kind of overlapping, okay? And in a way, it's intensifying as we read, read through uh, Revelation. Things seem to be getting more serious, it's a quarter of the earth, and it's a third of the earth, and then it's half the earth, right? It's intensifying. Uh, but we see then in this structure that it's, it's clearly symbolic, right? It's, it's artistic. Um, what it's trying to help us to do in giving us these different pictures and perspectives is to have understanding and insight right, into things that have already happened right, from Jesus' first coming onwards, things that are currently happening in the time of the original readers and for us, and things that will happen in the future. Right? It's God telling Christians back then who were suffering under Roman rule that life of persecution and opposition and hardship was the life that was to be expected. What they were living was the way that things were meant to be, and they were meant to understand that so they would be able to endure and to be able to hold on to their faith and to continue with their Christian witness and to be able to conquer to the very end. It's God telling Christians now and, and in the future that persecution, suffering, and hardship uh, is what we are to expect and in order that we may understand and maybe we, we may endure and that we may be able to uh, continue on in faith and in our witness so that we may conquer to the end. So what God is doing is that he's reading all this through striking kind of apocalyptic language and imagery, right? As we've been hearing over the last uh, 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 week and in, in the beginning part of the sermon series, it's all very kind of vivid and, and very powerful. Uh, it gives us in a way, a different picture, isn't it? A heavenly kind of picture, a spiritual picture, a other-dimensional kind of picture and perspective to, to emphasize that we're dealing with things that are more than just kind of things that we can see and touch, things that are mundane and that are earthly. One of the most important things in life is to see beyond earthly realities, right? That life isn't so simple and so mundane, Spiritual realities are as real as real can be, right? Spiritual realities are as real as real can be. More importantly, spiritual realities are eternal realities, right? Eternal realities. They define and give meaning to things in life now and forever, right? Spiritual realities gives us meaning uh, and purpose and understanding to life now and forever, now, before we dive into our passage today, Revelation 13, let me just say a couple of things about this section from uh, 12 to 14. In chapters 12 to 14, we, 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 if you read through it, you'll see seven signs. Um, and uh, the focus of these seven signs seems to be on worship. And more importantly, a war about worship, a war on worship. Last week, we saw the first two signs. The first sign is the lay, the woman that comes up. And, and we know that she represents God's people, Israel. And she bears a son. And, and we see the second sign, the dragon, Satan, who is going after the son. And he thought he got the son, right? At the cross, he thought he, he defeated uh, the, the, this child, this son. But instead, uh, the cross and the resurrection led to Satan's defeat. So you hear last week, we saw Satan, he's defeated, and he's thrown down and cast out of heaven onto the earth. And we heard last week that as a defeated enemy, he cannot 
destroy God's people. He cannot destroy the church. But he's still thrashing about. He will still war against the Christians uh, here on earth. He will make life difficult for Christians. He will snipe at Christians. He will try to pick off as many Christians as he can. Even though he can't defeat the church, he will try to pick off as many Christians as he can. Now today in chapter 13, we'll give an important insight into how the dragon wars against the church and against believers. Right? He does it through two beasts. Right? Through two beasts, each with their own, each posing their own threat. One beast will use force, the other beast will use falsehood. Right? One will use force, one will use falsehood, falsehood. One will be like the stick, and the other will be the carrot. Now, the dragon and the two beasts, they're, they're presented to us in these two chapters as kind of like an unholy trinity, right? an unholy trinity, the counterfeit trinity, a usurping of God, a replacing of God, wanting the worship of the world and wanting to um, turn away the worship of Christians from the true trinity, from the true God. Anyway, let's get into the, uh, chapter 13, but we end in chapter 12 with a very dramatic scene, don't we? Right, we see that in chapter 12, the defeated dragon, he's furious and he's set to make war on the church, and there he stands by the seashore. Now, if this was a drama, right, maybe a kind of Lord of the Rings, kind of sci-fi drama, this will be the end of the episode. And you see this dragon furious standing by the seashore, then episode finishes, right? And next week you come back, you turn on the next episode, and then you get the recap, and you see the dragon there on the shore. And what's going to happen? Well, he calls out, Right, the first beast from the sea. In a very dramatic scene, it comes out. And you have a look at this beast, and it's described for us in a, in a way that's very similar to the dragon. Um, and when we see the description of this beast, it will be clear to us that it's a counterfeit Christ. Right, the, the dragon seems to be like a father figure, and this, dra- this beast is like a counterfeit Christ. Firstly, we see that the beast has almost the exact same head features Right, as the dragon. So if you look at chapter 12, verse 3, the description of the dragon, and then chapter 13, verse 1, you will see that they're very similar. They've got ten horns and seven heads. Now, the difference between the dragon and the beast is that for the beast, it's got um, uh, ten diadems, right, which are crowns, versus the seven that the dragon had. And the, the crowns are placed not on the heads, which were the, what was the case for the dragon, but on the horns themselves. Now, we all kind of uh, hopefully remember the symbolism of numbers from the previous week. So let me explain, right? So 10, remember, represents sort of completeness or many. Horn represents power. And so the crowns on the beast's horns emphasizes the beast's power, right? The beast's rule with his horns. And this is confirmed as we read on in the rest of the descriptions. The beast, we're told, uh, had the parts of three animals, and if you remember the Daniel 7 reading that Alan gave to us, the Daniel 7 animals were the lion, the leopard, uh, and the bear, right? And they represented in Daniel 7 successive kings and empires that would follow after Babylon. But here, it's all smushed together in this one hideous creature, right? The, 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 the leopard and the bear and the lion all smushed together in the body of this sea beast. It's the picture of him being kind of the summation, the king of kings, so to speak, isn't it? The fake king of kings, the the picture of the supreme, all-powerful king. He's trying to be the Christ, the Christ of God, the almighty king. Add to this picture is the picture of the dragon giving his authority to the beast. Um, It's mimicking how the father gives his authority to his son, to do the works of the father on earth. 
And to cap it all off, in verse 3, we see that this sea beast, he has a very distinctive feature. He's got this mortal wound that was healed, which really is a parody, isn't it, of the grand entrance right, of the Son of God back in Revelation 5 in that throne room scene. You remember? They were all wondering, right, who can open the seal right, that, would, that would allow God's purposes and plans of history to be played out? And then we had this dramatic scene where, where we see the lamb who's, who was slain, who was as if slain coming onto the scene, someone who had received a mortal wound but who had been resurrected. And so this, this sea beast right, mimics, it's got his own um, signs of death and resurrection on his body. Um, he's trying to be a counterfeit Christ. Now, lots and lots of ink and lots and lots of breath right, has been spilled and wasted, I think, debating on who this sea beast might be. Now, for the first readers, it could certainly be someone like Nero, right, the emperor of the great Roman Empire, the great persecutor of the church in the 50s and the 60s, uh, AD 5060. And as some of you may know, Nero committed suicide in the, in the late 60s. But then a rumor, a legend kind of arose that he actually didn't die, but he rose from the dead, and he was still very much alive at the time when this letter was written in the 90s, 1890s. And if it wasn't a literal kind of mortal wound resurrection, there may be a figurative one, because the mission, the Caesar, the emperor of the 90s, was known as the second Nero, because he was the one that raised up the second great persecution of the church. But for subsequent readers, it's pretty clear, isn't it, that the sea beast is a representation of all Christ's wannabes, right? It's a representation of all Christ's wannabes, all rulers that uses power and authority to achieve the dragon's purposes. And what purpose is this? Well, we'll point 2B now, right? The first, the first purpose of this sea beast is clear. Verse 3 and 4. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. For they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? You see, the beast wants the world's worship, and he gets it by exerting force and power right, and control. And when this beast is worshipped, what is ultimately happening is that the dragon is being worshipped, the father figure is being worshipped, because it is the dragon who has given authority to this sea beast. It's the one who stands behind the sea beast. Now, the sea beast, I think, represents all the power and authority and the might and the greatness of this world. It's the use of the heavy hand to show who's boss. It's the one that's in control. It's the one to be marveled at for its power, for its rule and authority is to be followed and to be obeyed. It sets out to make people see that it is the incomparable, the all-powerful one. And not only that, and this is the second purpose now, the beast goes to war against God and against God's people. So have a look at uh, verse 6 and 7. Right? The sea beast opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it also was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Now, how does the sea beast blaspheme God? Well, in the context of what we've read so far, I think it's really obvious, isn't it, how he's blaspheming God. Uh, the beast craves to be worshipped as if it were the Son of God, right? The incomparable, almighty Christ. He puts himself forward as the preeminent Christ to be worshipped by all, bearing the marks of the true Christ, exerting the authority of the true Christ. 
Right? It's a blasphemy because he is not the true Christ. He's blaspheming God, blaspheming the Son of God. And then he goes to war against God's people. That is to say that he's furious at those who won't bow down and worship it, who won't submit. Well, then they'll suffer under the force and the power of this beast, and they'll be conquered. Now, for the original readers, I think this counterfeit Christ was clearly Rome, isn't it? It's, it's not hard to see how the original readers would have interpreted this as Rome, its Caesars, its emperors, and its empire. Power, right, in the greatest human form, exerted through politics and through the military and through brutal persecution and social and economic oppression. Right, it was really pressing down on the early believers, now, down through the centuries to us, right up to the present moment, and certainly for the days ahead before Jesus returns, the sea beast will continue his worship-inducing and his worship-forcing ways through the means of power. Right, through any and every use of human power, our world is being led to worship and follow the beast. Through any and every use of human power, Christians are being persecuted and oppressed in order to turn away our worship from God to the beast. Now, for us in Australia, uh, living here in Brisbane today, for us who come from the richer parts of Southeast Asia in particular and other first world countries, uh, the exertion of power to force us to turn away from God is probably not we, something that we experience in any great way. Right? When we come to passages like this, the work of the sea beast is probably not really our experience. Now, certainly some of us will face some level of overt and forceful persecution, uh, and perhaps we might know one or two people who are actually facing this, some, maybe like our, our sister Arya, right, who came from Iran, and she's going through this kind of experience. But it will be a far cry, isn't it, from the kind of experience that the first Christians faced in the Roman Empire, and it's a far cry from many Christians who face this kind of uh, persecution uh, in places like uh, North Korea and Afghanistan and China and Iran and many more countries in our world. Now, some of you hopefully might know this, but actually the majority of Christians today suffer. Right? We are probably the minority, I would say. If you look at the World Watch list put up by Open Doors about the, uh, the statistics of who is being persecuted around the world, you can see that huge parts of the world, a huge percentage of Christians are being persecuted. Every day, eight Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. Every week, 182 churches or Christian buildings are attacked. Every month, 309 Christians are imprisoned justly. Right? These are the stats. You can do the sum of what that looks like yearly. Right? Thousands and perhaps millions of our brothers and sisters in Christ are feeling the force, the full weight of the first beast it is their lived reality. Let us not forget that as we sit in the comfort of Brisbane and Australia. Now, to Christians facing the pressure of powerful persecution and of forceful opposition, God gives two words of comfort, two words of comfort in this passage. Okay, two words of comfort. The first word of comfort is this, right? I am in control, you are safe. I am in control, you are safe. Did you notice in the passage how God is still ultimately in control? The sea beast may have received authority from the dragon, but how is it able to use it against God? Have a look at verse 5. It tells us there it's able to, only, to, to blaspheme God because God allows it. 
It's able to blaspheme God because God allows it. And then only, it's only for 42 months, which if you calculate 42 months is three and a half years, which is 1,260 days. Right? We've seen this in Revelation. It's, it's describing a limited and a set period of time. It can only persecute, uh, it can only go against God. Uh, it's only allowed to do so by God for a limited amount of time. The beast may have been given power right, by, uh, by, the, by the dragon to go to war against Christians. But how is it actually able to do that? It's because in verse 7, it tells us that God allows it, that God permits it. Right? It's, it's all in God's hands still, even what the, the beast is doing to God and to his people. Another note of assurance is also found in verse 8 with a mention of the book of life. We've heard this one mentioned before, haven't we, back in chapter 7. Those who worship the beast do not have their names in the book of life. But for those uh, who don't worship the beast, for those whom the beast rages against, we are given the comfort that we have our names written in the book of life. We might be in danger now in these 42 months but for eternity, we will be safe and secure and eternally blessed. Right? Safety and security in eternity. Now, the second word of instruction is this. The second comfort, a word of instruction. Right? Persecution is the reality. Persecution is the reality, so don't fight back. Don't fight back, but endure. Have a look at verse 9 to 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. You know, to be taken captive and to be killed is the lot for some believers, is the fate for some believers. In this period where the counterfeit Christ wars against Christians, the reality is that some will be taken and thrown into prison. Some will be tortured and punished. And some indeed will be executed for their faith. Now, it sounds bleak, doesn't it? But if we haven't got our head in the sand as Christians, we know that this is the reality for what Christians have faced right back to the first century up to today. But this is the reality. And in a way, it's a comfort to know that this reality is how God sees it as well. It's what God allows. It sounds bleak, but know this. They would not have paid the ultimate price. You know how sometimes we say that? You know, they paid the ultimate price for their faith. No, they haven't. The ultimate price is heaven. It's not the ultimate price that they've paid because death leads to presence with God forever. Right? It is a, a stepping stone. I mean, death is not a, a small thing. Right? Let's not mistake that. The, the, the suffering of, of persecuted Christians is not a small thing. But in a way, it is a small thing in light of eternity. And so the call to Christians suffering under the, the, uh, the, the pressure and pain of power is to endure, to hold on to your faith, to remain faithful to the true Lord in Christ, Jesus, and not succumb to this counterfeit one, now, for those of us who don't face the, the threat of the first beast as much, let us spare a thought, or maybe let us spare many thoughts uh, for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who do face the threat of the first beast. Let us make sure that we don't forget to pray for them and for their endurance. 
Right? We can even pray for their release too, if God wills it. Right? But for, more importantly, for them to be able to endure to the end. And perhaps we can think of other ways that we can support them. Maybe financially, like many of us are doing with Aria and, and, and her family. And perhaps others that we can come to know through organizations like Voice of the Martyrs or Barnabas Fund or, or Open Doors. If this is something that you want to think about and pursue and do, speak to one of the church leaders who will be able to hopefully direct you into how you can be more mindful and be helping those who are suffering the, 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 the effects, the pressures, the force of the first beast to be able to endure. Now, as we move on to the second half of the passage and the second beast, I think this is the one that is more relevant for most of us, if not all of us listening in today. Right? So the, the second beast is now called for from the earth. Uh, all innocent looking, right? like a lamb, like a little sheepy with two little horns, right? not very threatening. But it speaks the words of the dragon, doesn't he? Now, in other words, he's the classic wolf in sheep's clothing that Jesus taught about uh, in the Gospels. And here is the picture of the counterfeit Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit, the real one, is the spirit of the Father and the Son. And hopefully you know that. Uh, he is equal in divinity with the Father and Son, but his role is to draw attention and worship to the Father and Son. So if you look into the New Testament, you read about the role of the Spirit. He's never drawing attention to himself. He's trying to get you to worship Jesus and to worship the Father. And so is the case here with the earth beast. Right? It has the same authority as the sea beast, but he's drawing the world's worship, not to himself, uh, but to the sea beast, who himself is drawing worship to the dragon, right, Satan. And we see that the earth beast performs great signs and great wonders, like the Holy Spirit does in the book of Acts. He is the one who speaks the words of the dragon and the beast, and the one who breathes life into the image of the beast. He is the one who marks out who belongs to the dragon and the beast. Doesn't that all sound like what the Holy Spirit does, right? The role of the Holy Spirit to speak the words of God, to breathe life, the life of Christ into people's hearts, and to, to mark out Right? and to put a stamp of who belongs to the Father and the Son, who will be marked out in the book of life for eternity. All of this, the earth beast copies, and he mimics. Now, what is the job of this earth beast? His job is to draw worship through falsehood. Right? So the first beast is through force. Now we see that he's doing it through falsehood. Have a look. Verse 13. It, the earth beast, performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives. It deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and lived. And so we see this earth beast, he acts as a false prophet, doesn't he? Performing great signs and wonders to entice and to wow people. Uh, he looks really, uh, really impressive, uh, super impressive, and so it is powerfully able to deceive the world into worshipping the sea beast and the dragon that stands behind it. Right? There's this display of power that is so deceiving to make the world worship the sea beast and the dragon. Now, make no mistake then, right? Spiritual signs and miraculous wonders, it could be from God, but it could be from the devil, right? They, they, the devil has as much ability to perform signs and wonders as God does, so we're told. Who is it from, really, right? In verse 15, 
The earth beast is also said then to give breath, which is to give voice to the first beast and to cause those who won't worship the first beast to be killed, to be slain. Now, what does this mean? Now, I think it's pretty clear if you are a first century original reader for this, because there is this connection between the earth beast giving voice to the sea beast, right, for it to be worshipped, or for it to be the thing that kills people who don't worship, right, the sea, the sea beast. And in the old times, the, the Roman Empire is something that uh, we, we know clearly seems to be the first beast, right, the, the might of Rome, the, the empire, the emperor. But I think many of you know, if you're here in the earlier part of the summer series, that the Roman Empire had a religious arm called the imperial cult. And the imperial cult made the Caesar to be a god, to be worshipped. Among the pantheon of other Greek and Roman gods, it made Caesar into a god, and the imperial cult enforced the worship of the first beast. Right? So for the first century reader, this is really clear. It's really obvious. Right, those who will not bow to the empire by worshipping Caesar, they would be killed or they would be marked out and excluded. The mark of the beast, right? To be, to be seen to be uh, belonging to the beast or if you do get marked by the beast, if you are marked by the Holy Spirit, if you are a believer, then whether you are small or great, as we're told, whether you are rich or poor, whether you are a free, free man or a slave person, if you were marked by the beast you had a good life in the empire. But if you were not, then you'd be killed or ostracized, excluded from society. Right? You'd be left out of business dealings. You couldn't buy, you couldn't sell, you couldn't trade. Not to mention facing the rejection of family and friends who bore the mark of the beast, who worshipped the imperial cult. Now, we went through all of this uh, in the letter to the seven churches, so go back and read it and go back and listen to those sermons if you want to know more. Now, it's not hard to see then how the second beast has been worked down through history up to today. Right? We don't have the imperial cult tied to the Roman Empire, but we can see the same principles, the same workings of this earth beast. There have always been and there, were, there is and there will always will be false prophets working through religion and spirituality and ideologies and propaganda all to induce and to deceive worship. See, through any and every use of falsehood, the world is being led to marvel and follow the beast. Through any and every use of falsehood, Christians are being tempted away from the true worship of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, into the worship of the counterfeit trinity. And so we see this, right? Many religions and spiritual, spiritualities perform signs and wonders. Remember, it's not just what Christians can do, but... The devil, the beast, can do it too. Many religions perform signs and wonders. They give, they give a, a true sense, a real sense of transcendence. Right? Many religions offer a spiritual connection to a higher being and, and to, to a tapping into some kind of power for life. They can be very elaborate and very impressive. <clears throat> we shouldn't be surprised that religions and spiritualities seem to have power, seem to have something to offer. <clears throat> now, Satan doesn't need right, people to go to the actual temple of Satan. They don't, he doesn't need for people to, on the census form for Australia that we just filled out, to tick the box that I'm a demonologist, right? That I belong to the church. He doesn't need that, right? Because the, the, the Satan's very clever, right? He's the, he's the ultimate capitalist, right? Diversified portfolio, right? Produces the best returns. So I don't give people the church of Satan. I give people whatever religion and spirituality they want. Doesn't matter 
as long as they turn away and they don't worship the true God, they worship me through all of these religions and spiritualities that the devil provides. We shouldn't be surprised then that there are many followers of many religions and spiritualities. They are, after all, empowered by a pretty powerful force, this earth beast that seeks to entice worship. But perhaps more dangerous for us is to know that falsehood exists in the church also. Right? It exists in the church also. Now, many signs and wonders have been performed in Christian circles. But the question is, are they from God or are they from the devil? Are they from God or are they from the devil? Because the, 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 the presence of signs and wonders by itself doesn't mean that it's from God because the earth beast has the power to do it as well. Now, this part is a heartbreaking part, really, for me to talk about, uh, about church um, and Christians, uh, the Christian circle worldwide in history. Now, how many Christians have you heard about or seen or perhaps your own experience? How many Christians have been so caught up with spiritual slayings and, and gold dust fallings and prophetic visionings and miraculous healings and all manner of signs and wonders, but have lost the single-minded worship of God? And what is that? It's very clear, the Scripture tells us. The single-minded worship of God is to trust in the Lord Jesus, is to grow as disciples of Jesus in His likeness through learning and studying His Word and in responding to obedience. It is through preaching the gospel of Jesus. How many Christians do we know get so caught up by the signs and wonders and all these fantastical things that happen within churches but have actually drawn them away from the single-minded focus of Jesus and the gospel as the center and in a way the sum total of God's plans and purposes. Within the church, there have been many impressive preachers and teachers. But how many have we seen and heard over the years who have proven themselves to be agents of the evil one rather than the servants of Jesus Christ? Um, uh, how many have ended up being really False prophets of the false prophet. False teachers preaching false gospels. Prosperity gospels, social justice gospels, permissive gospels, legalistic gospels, all the gospels except the true gospel. Christless spirituality that's being taught, right? Spirituality and a new ageism without Christ really being the picture. <clears throat> preaching for financial gain or for personal fame. We've seen sexual predators, spiritual abusers, power mongers. Sadly, falsehood in the church comes in so many forms. And if you have been the recipient of any of that, I feel so sad and sorry that you've had to experience that right, within the Christian church. Because that is not Christian. But that is the ministry of the earth beast using falsehood within the church to, to destroy and to bring such carnage the fallout, the falling away of believers because of all these false prophets in churches, it's, it should break our hearts, shouldn't it? And perhaps maybe even closer to home and even more sadly is within Christian homes that we see spiritual leaders, especially husbands and fathers and mothers, living out and teaching false worship within the home, sending mixed messages right, in their homes. They're Christian by name, they are Christian on the weekend when they go to church and fellowship group. But for the most part, they are worshippers of the world. 
They're worldly people, prioritizing worldly success, idolizing comfort and, and, and coveting pleasure and material possessions. Sadly, there are false prophets even in our homes as well. Falsehood in churches and homes is a very real and present danger that we must be aware of. Finally, it's not hard to see how political ideologies, right, the politics of our world, function as a false prophet that seeks to draw worship away from God and to Satan. Now, we have seen and heard an experience in recent times, especially through, through, because of social media and globalization, uh, the, the rising voice and influence of social and political agendas. Um, this is a completely new thing for me. I didn't grow up with this, right? I'm old enough that I didn't have internet when I was growing up. But over the last few years, right, things like left-wing, you know, liberal progressives, right-wing, uh, I have to read all this because it's all new to me, right? Right-wing conservatism and nationalism, kind of think Trump, uh, communism and capitalism and identity politics, and all these new words that before last week I didn't know about. Uh, I need some ideas. I had to start reading blogs and listening to podcasts and, and, and all this stuff just to get my head around all these new social political ideologies that is drawing worship. Because each cause, they assert the authority. They want people to fall in line with what they are saying, right? their ideas and their way of life. Uh, they, and they seem so powerful. Right? They hold out you know, the promise. This is the, the, the reality that we are to live by. This is the, the, the ideology. This is the propaganda that should shape your life. This is, I think, the religion of, of especially the first world, isn't it? Uh, they, 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 are, they are seeking followers. Uh, they're wanting to order your life. They're calling you to worship. Doesn't that sound like religion to you? So they may put down that they have non-religious or atheist on the, on the census, but they're religious. And they worship these world ideologies and propagandas. So the world, right, is following the earth beast through the deception of social politi politics. But for those who don't align in worship, for those who are stepped with the world, um, for those who refuse to mark, be marked by the beast in these ways of thinking, then our experience will be one of persecution and exclusion and rejection. Right? I think some of you have already started feeling this, right? It, it, the, the pressure from peers, right, to conform to the world's way of thinking. Now, so it's easy to see, I think, this second beast, this earth beast, is the false prophet. And it's the bigger threat, it's the bigger threat of the two for most of us sitting here today. So the question then is, how are we to respond? How are we to respond? Now, the passage gives us one, one clear response, and that is wisdom. So have a look, verse 18. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man, and his number is 666. This calls for wisdom, and thank you very much, right, for this wisdom that is what kind of wisdom is this in verse 18? Right? It tells us that we need to have wisdom, we need to have discernment, we need to know what we're dealing with. And then he says, calculate the number of the beast. The number of men, 666. Now let me talk about, firstly about the importance of discernment, all right, before we actually figure out what is this number of the beast. Now let's deal with the, um, uh, the elephant in the room, and that is this. Right? I'm sure everyone's seeing me flashing my arm around, and you're probably wondering what the heck has Ben done this time. Uh, so let me talk about this as an illustration for what we're dealing with in this part of the passage. Uh, as you all know, I got injured about five weeks ago, uh, and I didn't really know what was wrong with it because I obviously can't see inside. It just hurts, right? Uh, so I decided after four weeks that maybe I should get it checked out. So then I went and got a scan, 
right? So I got an MRI done, and here's my MRI. Uh, and um, it, MRIs are useless if you can't read them, okay? So I call up my mother-in-law, who's a sonographer. She does ultrasound. She goes, I can't read MRIs. I'm an ultrasound person. <laughs> so I said, well, I've got enough experience. I've got so many MRIs. So I thought, I may check it out myself. So I, then I, I thought, oh, I'll go YouTube, because YouTube gives you everything you need to know about everything, right? So I search MRI, TFCC, which is apparently my injury, and I compare the lecture notes and the images on the lecture to the, the diagram. And I thought, oh, I'm, I'm getting somewhere here. But then I found out there's an there's a, there's a, there's a image that actually had arrows on it. The radiologist was so kind right, to put arrows there to show where the problem is. So then I could look at this YouTube lecture and figure out a little bit more closely what exactly is wrong. But it is until I got the proper report from the radiologist don't read it, right? This is my personal information, okay? But it's only when I got the report from the radio. This is actually going online, so you can probably pause it. Uh, oh well, it's only my my wrist. Um, but it's only when I get the report from the expert of radiology before I know what is the problem and how to manage the problem, and to realize then that I should really be in a splint, and I shouldn't have been playing basketball and gone bowling, right? Last Sunday. Because apparently that's the worst thing you can do for this injury. Uh, good thing I had it all strapped up. So and I had a good score anyway, so it's all worth it. <laughs> no, not really, not really. But this highlights to us the importance of wisdom and discernment to be able to figure out how to deal with a problem, right? And this, the wisdom that we're taught in verse 18 that we need to have is to be able to do what? To calculate the number of the beast, which is the number of man, which is 666. Now, People have gone to town on this verse, right? Coming out with all sorts of interpretations for who or what this is. Uh, and you can go and check it out for yourself if you want. Is it some specific guy, maybe Nero, right? And then you get his name and you use the, you take his Greek name and you trans translate it to Hebrew and you put a letter to every letter, a number to every letter. Then it comes up with 676. So you have to take out one letter and then, oh, it fits 666, right? Uh, and then maybe it's not, maybe it's Hitler, right? So you use the English alphabet and then you give it some number, rare value, and then you, whatever, right? You can go to town on that. I'm not going to go through all the options. There's a lot, right? You can spend hours wasting your time thinking about what 666 represents. But let's go with Revelation in context. The 666 is a number, and we've seen plenty of numbers in Revelation. Uh, seven is the number that we've seen over and over, right, in our outline, in all the passages. Seven represents perfection. So six sounds like one less than perfection. That makes sense. Six, six, six. Why is it three sixes? Well, we are familiar with how when things are repeated three times, like holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy represents an intensified completeness of holiness. So six, six, six represents an intensification, a completeness of this six, which is a one less than complete. On top of that, we've seen this unholy trinity in the context of Genesis 12 and 13. So maybe 666 also indicates to us the work of, of, of the dragon, of the sea beast, and the earth beast. You put it all together, I think my conclusion in context is that 666 represents the completeness of sinful imperfection. Right? The completeness of sinful imperfection. It is the symbol, the symbolic number of persistently falling short of perfection. It is the mark of man because it is not ultimately of God. And so to calculate the number of the beast is to be able to identify, to have the wisdom to be able to see what falls short of perfection. What is the counterfeit trinity 
and what is the work of the dragon through his two beasts. I think that's what, the, what this wisdom is about. Right? It's, it's about being able to see what falls short of perfection. Especially here in verse 18, at the end of the earth beasts, is about being able to have wisdom in the face of deception. Now, the counterfeit product offered by the earth beast is so close, which makes it so dangerous. So close, but so dangerous. He seems to be able to deliver wonderful signs and miracles that make you seem as if you are in touch with the transcendent and the truly spiritual. Right? The ideologies and, the, and, and, the, and the, the propaganda being offered seems to be able to order your life, give you success in the workplace, right? have a social life, have, 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 have meaning and purpose, have, have the blessings of this world. It all offers so much. It seems so close to what we need and what we want, but it always falls short. But that closeness is what makes it so dangerous. Now, if you remember, the definition of discernment isn't being able to tell right from wrong. It's about being able to tell right from almost right. It's not about being able to tell seven from one, but be able to tell the difference between seven and six. That is the wisdom that we need. We need to equip ourselves with knowledge and insight. We must know and understand God's word. And to be able to understand what is true and what is almost true and so deceptively false. What is all the the cause for our worship and our allegiance and our obedience out there in the world? All the offers of of life and, 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 and order and worship that the world offers, ultimately from the beast offers, that isn't actually what God says. Ultimately, we need to know every single day, is this from God? Or is this from the devil? Now, in, these, uh, in this chapter and in chapter 12, we've been given a very important perspective of life today. Right? Christians are in a war. The world is in a war for worship. Right? Satan is enticing the world to follow him and is trying to snipe away at Christians to make sure we don't worship the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he does it in two big ways, through the two beasts, force and falsehood. Power and pressure, stick and carrot. And it's quite clear what we need, isn't it? We need to know, especially under the face of force and persecution, that God is in control and that we are safe. God is in control and we are safe. So we are to endure as we suffer. And we are to help others who are suffering to endure. What we need in the face of falsehood and deception is to have clarity. Is to have clarity and wisdom to know what is false and what is deceptive because there are so many kinds of deceptions, world religions, world ideologies, even within the church and within homes. We need to grow our wisdom in the Word and the ways of God to be able to know what is true so that we can conquer, so that we can stay faithful to the end. Now, later on, there will be questions coming up that will help you to explore this in more detail. Right, these are big principles, so I hope that you'll be able to kind of talk through uh, how these two beasts are at work right, today, and especially in your life, and how is it you're going to counter uh, the effects of Satan's work. Now, let me pray. Heavenly Father, indeed, we give you great thanks for the book of Revelation. For on first reading uh, and subsequent readings, maybe even, we, we might feel fear that we, we don't understand what is it you're trying to say. 
And yet when there is clarity, when we do understand, it gives us the pictures and the perspectives that we so need to know about what life is like between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. What life is like now for us as Christians, as a church, uh, as we feel the, the, as we experience the war on worship uh, that the dragon has set out to do uh, while he's been cast down on earth. How he is, uh, through the work of the sea beast and the earth beast, through the, through the use of force and through the use of falsehood, is trying to draw the world's worship away from you and trying to draw our worship away from you. Please give us the endurance and the wisdom that we need to be able to hold on to the truth, to be able to hold on to our true worship of the true God. Please help us to understand these things. Please help us to endure, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.